moving your career further faster. That's the mission behind Cascading Leadership. Each week, we're bringing you stories of women, immigrants, members of the global majority who have risen to the ranks of senior leadership in the world of business. Get ready to gather the insights of some of the world's best business leaders and apply those to your career. If you're interested in sales and marketing effectiveness, organizational effectiveness, talent strategy, DEI, or HR tech, tune in. We're going to share with you what they don't teach you in business school. Welcome to the show. Welcome to today's episode of Cascading Leadership. I am your friendly neighborhood talent strategy nerd, Dr. Jim. And this is one of our special episode series focusing on innovators and disruptors. And today we're in for some pretty critical learning. It's going to be a show that is focused on AI. And we're going to learn a number of key things about AI that might surprise the audience. So we're going to learn how AI is dumb. We're going to learn why AI is only scary if you're training it for bad things. And then we're also going to learn, and this might surprise some people, that AI is everywhere and we just don't realize it yet. So to educate us on all this stuff, we have Ostik Seni, who is the co-founder of Atha, which is a disruptive startup that we will talk a little bit about in the show that leverages AI as a force for good. So Ostik, welcome to the show. So... Amastik. Currently, I'm hi. I've been involved in technology for a long time. Currently, I am leading a startup called Etha, which is a political social media platform, which and is trying to provide you with interactive news. Yeah. Apart from that, I started my journey at a very young age. I was five years old when I saw a computer first and started using it. Started soon thereafter. I started learning coding when I was 14. And yeah, from there on out, it just kept on growing. Uh, when like in high school, I was rooting and jailbreaking phones for my peers, repairing laptops to make some pocket chains. Then yeah, after that, I got it, got my engineering in information technology. My specialization is big data analytics and AI. I've worked with the four different startups as a member of the initial hire or the core team. And I've worked on a lot of cool stuff. Like one of the startups that I was working with, it was a full body motion capture suit for AI, neurological rehab, even on assembly lines for ergonomic analysis. So to make sure that the assembly lines are safe for the workers. Thanks for getting us at least a brief snapshot. One of the things that I'm curious about, you said that uh, that you've worked in four other startups. What is it about the startup world that uh, you continue going back to? Actually, when I was in my third year of engineering, I had a chance to intern with the Goldman Sachs. And there I saw the corporate world from inside out. And it there are a lot of procedures in that world. And it takes time to follow all those procedures and deliver things. And I'm not a person who's used to waiting when he wants to make build something, make something who's motivated by their work. I can't sit on my seat and wait for my manager to approve of it so that I can start working. That's actually a pretty interesting observation. And the reason why it caught my attention is that when I look at my own sort of preferences, I have a hard time working in super large organizations for the same reason, is that there's too many guardrails. I think you and I connect in the way that we want to make as much impact as fast as possible and see how we can actually accelerate 
whatever it is that we're working on. So it's not about just keeping the seat warm. It's while we're here, what are we going to do and what are we going to make happen? So I could totally relate to your affinity to startups because that's actually been the space that I tend to graduate or gravitate towards. So the other thing that I'm curious about, you you referenced this in your bio. You said two things that caught my attention. One, you've been messing around with computers since five. And two, you were jailbreaking phones and doing all sorts of other stuff for pocket change since the time you were a teenager. So what's the story behind that? It is actually quite interesting. The person who got me started with computers was my grandfather. He used to use a lot of Excel. He was a bank manager, actually. So the computer at home, all I saw was Excel. And when I got onto it, I, like, I started playing a couple of games, online games, and got interested in it. My grandfather used to set it up for me and I used to play it. And I got interested in that. So after that, I just had the computer at my disposal. 10 kbps, old-time modem setup. So I had some internet connection. Yeah, from there on out, I started learning. By by the time I was 14, I actually, instead of spending my summer in a camp or any place else, I actually joined an IT institute for training purposes. I got three certifications within the next three years. So at an age where most teens are out hanging out with their friends and doing teen stuff, you're actually getting certifications in technology. Did you feel like you missed out on some stuff when when you went that route? Or was it just, hey, I just like doing this. So this is this is fun for me. I don't think I missed out on all on the fun, on all the fun, because I still made sure I had fun. It was not as much as other people because I enjoyed my solitary time. Like when I was 17, I was making this a small car, toy car which had when the front wheels move, the rear wheels charge the battery. And when the rear wheels move, the front wheels charge the battery. And that, when you see it today, it actually closely relates to the hybrid systems in cars. The petrol engine runs the wheel. It's similar in concept to the hybrid synergy drive that the Prius has had. I was 15 back then. So you designed a model car that had a miniaturized version of the hybrid synergy drive where, where wow, that's like pretty I broke, interesting. I took apart a remote control car, a helicopter, yeah. and a disc map to get all the components and put them together. So for the people that are way younger than both you and I are, Discman is a portable music device before, before an iPod and before your iPhone that you actually put a compact disc, which is like a silver circle to a thing and you put your headphones on. I'm fascinated by this entire technical bent of yours. So you said that your grandfather was into computers, but are a lot of people in your family into engineering or highly technical fields? Dad, yes. My mom and dad are heavily into printing. So they know Photoshop better than me. And that's something they are experts at. And Yeah, it's good to have someone who you can, my parents can talk to me about computers, even though they don't understand that much. But when I show them something, they understand. So that that has been a very big factor for my growth because they didn't stop me from doing the things I was doing. So when you were exploring this passion for technology and engineering and just figuring out, out how stuff worked, would you say that you were more self-taught than formally educated in it? How did you learn all this stuff? So my my procedure for learning has been start with a structured, start in a structured way, go attend a course that gives you some direction. And when it gives you some direction, like I would do like, I would go on course, me opt in for some course, do the first 10 videos, then just go out, explore on my own. So 
it's the initial push that you need and the direction after that if you have the interest you should pursue it by all means so that, even though i have a bunch of degrees and all that stuff i don't have a lot of patience of sitting for sitting in theory so all of these books there's a lot of business books that have concepts in it and i'll read the concept to get a framework and then i'll want to see how can i execute within this structure to see what it actually does in the real world and then improve that way it, it, it sounds like you and i are similarly wired but in different spaces it's very similar to how startups operate like we have the ideology of fail fast go to the market fast fail fast even learnings like that go for it fail go back again i talk about this with my sales teams like my expectation for people who are frontline contributors in sales and even for myself is fail fail fast fail often fail forward and you should always be looking at whatever it is that you're doing from a researcher or scientist perspective i have a theory let me see what it does let me control for the things that i know might turn it sideways and let's observe what happens and adjust the variables to see what it does to the outcome let's talk a little bit about your journey into the ai space you had a passion early on in technology in general how did you navigate from engineering to big data and analytics uh, i actually learned c++ and java by high school so after that when i was doing my engineering we had different paths for computer science like big data analytics digital marketing social media and others and three or four of different kinds so i chose big data analytics one of the for one of the primary reasons because it looked interesting and it was something like what is big data everybody knows what data is but plain for the average person what does it mean when you're talking about how big data shows up in the world and how it can be utilized data can mean anything that you store right but big data would be data that might or might not be related to each other and we have to form relations in between that for example like facebook it stores a lot of your data it knows where you're logging in from it knows where you what you reacted to it knows your persona what kind of material you like storing all this data and analyzing it on a regular basis cannot be done by the same principles that we use for normal data because this is this data can be like it will be photos videos text it can be anything so to be like big data helps us correlate all these things together and get into in, get insights about how people perceive topics how what kind of advertisement campaign would actually attract different kinds of people and that is like the entry point to ai like big data with ai is what every big company depends on if i'm trying to draw a parallel in my head to what you're describing so if we're to say what big data does or how it's operationalized it's basically stimulus and response but done in a multi-threaded fashion so you yes. have multiple elements of stimulus you want to see if one or more elements get activated how does that impact a particular response is really what you're describing right not only that but there are also different practices for storing this data because your traditional hard drives and ssds fail at this point because it's just big so you got into big data because it was just an area of interest in it at the time it was one of the more emerging fields yes. what um, drew you further into that space yes what drew me further into that space was understanding what kind of data these big companies are collecting how social media's operate 
how like how even companies like oracle or others use big data and it is very fascinating when you like look at it like how these companies have been able to solve these issues that they are facing just depending on data by collecting more of it and it's amazing how accurate that collected data is and how the ai models train on that are changing the world the way we see it now you've had some experience working in some of these larger companies and seeing how they're leveraging big data why don't you give us a little bit of an overview of how all of this information is leveraged to for lack of a better word manipulate the co- uh, consumer definitely so people assume that your phones like the f- microphones like google's listening from the microphone or apple's listening amazon's listening but you don't realize they don't even have to listen to you to know what you want let's say we have a dorm room and four people are living in that dorm room now from the same ip if four different people are connecting and one person search, searches for some sneakers right now if he continuously searches for those sneakers from that same wifi router for 5 days his dorm mates will also get recommendation for those sneakers because that person would have talked to them and it's localization and that is one way of driving advertisements how people have been able to drive advertisements on these social media platforms now that you actually describe it that way the way that a lot of these platforms whether you're talking about Alexa or Google or Facebook or anything that's connected to the internet that you're doing stuff on the way that it's operationalized from the business side it's basically building sort of a psychological trigger yes. for you to consume it's almost i don't know if you've seen this movie but it's almost inception where you think it's your idea but it's actually a flood of information that's been thrown at you with a particular theme that convinces you or manipulates you into making a particular decision. You keep mentioning these interesting things about your journey into AI. We're never going to get to the rest of the story. You've worked in these organizations, you you got interested in their focus in big data and how it can be leveraged to do any number of things. Did every startup that you were a part of have a big data and AI component to it or was it the more recent ones? It was in the more recent ones that they had a big data and AI component. Before that, I was working with big data, but more on the the designing and the other part of it, where the user just comes in, logs in, and other things. Let's talk a little bit about AI more specifically. If you ask like the average person, yeah. the average person is going to say AI is going to be what leads us to the world of Terminator. and you have intelligent robots that are just wiping out humanity and you know you'll have all sorts of other things that are like that's the sci-fi end of the world sort of stuff so why would you argue that view of what ai could be is misguided we have to start this question with the basics of computers work on this principle garbage in garbage out so whatever you put in towards making like whatever you put in towards a computer program that is what it's going to give you when i say ai is dumb it means it doesn't know it learns like it's like raising a baby when a baby is born it doesn't know how to speak how to see how to like what a color is and it is us humans who impart that knowledge the initial data set but if i teach a kid that red is green all his life he's going to believe red is green it depends on what you tell it so let me take that a step further then so if ai is only as smart as the input that it's given yes and if you look at the broader world of big technology and big data and ai and all this sort of stuff 
it's basically like a bunch of white guys that are like building the algorithms. And that generally has its set of built-in biases that that are in there. I think we've all seen the data or the studies that show that when AI has been applied for facial recognition, no problem recognizing Caucasian faces. But as soon as you have non-white faces that are being applied for facial recognition purposes, you have all sorts of problems in matching that up. So to your point about AI is dumb and it only knows what you teach it, what are the things that can be done to make it smarter or more fair or more equitable? The first and foremost thing while training an AI or building an AI would be like finding an adequate data set, which is if we are put, make, putting together a face recognition, we should have like equal data sets of different ethnicities put together because and that would help us so the initial thing that you teach the ai that needs to be accurate and on top of that we have a lot of mathematical algorithms that actually go against this and solve the issue at hand for example there's one thing called focal loss which actually we are also using in our current startup it helps the ai focus on quality over quantity and stop learning the extreme patterns so like when it starts detecting a lot of caucasian faces it will start, stop learning all the similarities between different Caucasian faces. So it won't go to the extremities of learning. The way that you just described it, it caught my attention in this way. So part of the way to make AI more intelligent is to eliminate the extremes. It's the same principle as the Olympics, where you have some sort of sport where you're being judged by a panel of judges. They throw out the highest and the lowest scores to give you the mid-range average score. So is that similar to what you're describing in terms of how you make AI smarter? That is one way of saying it, but it's not just an average. It's more than that. The like the algorithms, they cover up more than that. It like focuses on quality over quantity. So it's not all the time, it's not an average. It can be a median or any other factor as well. So when we're looking at building AI that's smarter, or more equitable or more fair, whatever whatever terminology that you want to use, and you focus on quality, how do you determine, because quality can be subjective too. My vision of quality can be different from yours. How do you determine what quality looks like? Yes. When training an AI is not like one short process, it's an iterative process. Like you have to go about it again and again, do your domain research, come back to the model train it again. And you have to work closely with the domain experts to actually be able to identify all those factors that go into that certain AI model to make it like better, increase the precision, accuracy, and all the other factors that we look for. Like training a 100% accurate accurate AI model, I don't think anyone has been able to do it yet. That's an unrealistic threshold anyways. That's unrealistic for humans as well. There's always going to be some level of error baked into anything. There's no perfect system that I'm aware of. So that makes logical sense. The thing that I'm curious about, a lot of companies are leveraging AI in any number of ways and big data in any number of ways to make some predictions about consumer behavior. So what companies are out there that are actually executing at that level where they're focused on data quality versus just aggregating a whole bunch of volume and making extrapolations from there? What's your lens into that? My lens is Big data solves the issue at hand in a very dirty way because as you increase the quantity of the data, 
you get more people more data more messy data right and when you try to make sense of that messy data you find the quality points and when you find those quality points the ai itself would find those start working on them based on the focal loss algorithm or any other thing it'll like keep it or discard it and just keep on learning based on that that's why it's an iterative process like what might be right for one one data set when i say data set it can be like pictures of people for one pictures of people it might work well for the second set it might not then we have to train it again and those factors change and it's an ever changing process like an ai would be totally different from yesterday and the next day so let's talk a little bit more in detail about the general fear of ai i brought up the terminator reference giant self-aware robots that are out killing everything and i think one of the things that we talked about early on in the show is that ai is not necessarily something that you need you should inherently fear how do you base that claim what's the evidence that should shift people's thinking ai is scary only when it's used for bad purposes like the terminator example like you you train it to kill i forgot the name of the person sarah connor sir first it was sarah connor and then, then it was, it was john, john connor. connor so like to kill john connor and that is a destructive way to use it like even with existing technologies i can make some a drone into that and just give it a face and tell it look for this face go near it and blast off in those contexts it can be scary and that is but it's the same question like we have nuclear weapons but we also use nuclear energy it's a double edged sword the application principle makes sense but let's think about how some of these applications are already going down a road that that might not be great you just reference drones the whole justification for building drones in the first place was to remove pilots from the line Hopefully. of fire so the next logical step if you have something that's remotely controlled is build some level of intelligence in it so it can operate and execute a set of tasks on its own without human intervention. So at some point down the road from there, you could say, "Okay, we want you, the drone, to be programmed to look for this sort of person who is quote-unquote a terrorist and blow them up." It always goes down that road in terms of where it could go. And when you look at some of the other applications of AI, one of the interesting things about Google is that a few years ago their one of their core values or in their mission statement was don't be evil and they took that out and you come to find out that when you look at a lot of these nation states that have a high surveillance culture the algorithm or the intelligence behind those surveillance states is powered by Google's algorithm. So you already see some of the ways that AI is being applied in scary ways. So I guess when we're talking about that, yes, AI is scary in limited context, but we already see it going down that road. Which is more likely? Are people going to be building AI for as a force of good, or is it more likely that it's going to go through these other ways to manipulate people, isolate people, surveil people? What's your feel on it? Part 2 of our Innovators and Disruptors conversation will answer this question and so much more. Tune in next time to Cascading Leadership. Thank you for listening to this episode of Cascading Leadership. We hope you enjoyed the story as much as we did. Make sure you subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast player. Follow us on YouTube, TikTok, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Leave us a review. Tell a friend. If you're interested in sponsoring the show, reach out to me at jim@cascadingleadership.com. At 
Tune in next time for another great episode that will help you move your career further faster.